Good morning, Crossbridge family, and welcome to Crossbridge Online. If you're a guest with us this morning, I especially want to welcome you and just say thank you for joining us. And my hope and my prayer for you is the same as it is for every other single person joining us today. And that simply is no matter where you find yourself in your faith today, that you would be able to take one step towards Jesus Christ, because that's what we are all about here at Crossbridge. Thank you for being with us. And, and today feels honestly a little bit bittersweet because we are in the final week of our series, The Best is Yet to Come, where we've been walking through that little book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And, and if you've missed the first three weeks, I wanna tell you, you could always jump on Crossbridge On Demand right over on YouTube and catch up on these messages and, and these thoughts that we're going through through this book because it has been a blast. I've noticed a lot as we've been reading the book of Ruth together that there's a lot of decisions that need to be made in this book. And I've kind of wondered, as the authors put them out there, how much would have been different if, if someone chose something different? What, what, if, what if Orpah chose to stay and, and Ruth chose to go? Like, how would this story look different? And as I've begun to look at the decisions that are being made in this story, I've kind of thought about my own life and wondering what what would life look like if I chose differently, one thing or the other? Have you ever thought about that? If you've thought about that, just in the comments, give me a hand raise and amen that I know that, you, that maybe you've thought about this too. Would life look any different if I chose differently? I mean, what if 13-year-old Jimmy got his way and I really did marry Kelly Kapowski or or Jenny Garth from 90210. Like, what, what if I got my wish and decided, like, I know it's far-fetched, and it's like, that's ridiculous, it's not gonna happen, but have you ever thought about how different things might look? You know, what if, what if you picked one college over the one that you went to? Would life have looked different? What if you, you chose to forgive the person who hurt you instead of hold that grudge for so long? How would life look different if you chose to stay at the job instead of leave the job, or if you left the job instead of stayed at the job, life would look so different. And, and did you ever wonder about the decisions though you didn't really make? Maybe the times that, that you stopped, or instead of stopping to buy that person on the street who was asking for money, and you thought, maybe I should buy, no, I'm not gonna do that, and you chose not to and walked. Maybe those times when you've been in those awkward situations where one person begins to belittle another person. It could be, you know, in a relationship or, in, you know, a family. And instead of engaging, saying, this is wrong, or this isn't like, you know, we all do that kind of thing and, and that. Like, what if you stepped in? How would life have looked different? Not for you, but for them. Do you ever have those moments where you get that extra change back? It's like monopoly in real life, a bank error in your favor. How many times have we pocketed that thinking, if I can get out before they realize I get to keep it, what would have happened if you owned up and said, it's not mine? I mean, I, I think about this week, the decisions in my life where maybe the times I've chosen to look like Jesus, I'm like, I praise God for those decisions, but I also realize there's areas that I've needed to ask for forgiveness where the choice has been in front of me and I've chosen not to be the blessing. I've chosen not to show up with kindness and determination. I've chosen something different. And there's these moments that I've been asking this week, like, God, would you forgive me? Because I've made a lot of less than stellar decisions 
And I know I'm still here and I know he still loves me, but, but choosing to follow, to, choosing to look and follow Jesus, you know, really trying to love people where they are and, and treat people with dignity and respect, choosing to follow Jesus is exhausting. And, and this week, as well as many other times in my life, I've really wondered, is it worth it every single day? Because honestly, I just feel like I fail. When I look at a majority of my decisions, I'm at the center of what happens. It's about what I want, not what God wants. I mean, can I, can I just take a day off? There's times I want to say to people, like, if I wasn't a Christian, you know what I would say to them? If I didn't love Jesus, you know what I would say to them? And I say it up here, and I don't say it out here, but is it really that big of a difference? Like, my heart is already there. I would just love to take a day off. Is there a day, Jesus, that I can be offended by people who are idiots? By people who say things that deserve a punch in the face? Can I just give that once? Please? Can I just have a bubble for some of those people? Like, maybe I'll love most people, but you know those people that you just want to bubble up and be like, not them. Can I just have, just give me a day of not loving my enemy. And as much as I'd love to say, yes, you could have a day, as disciples of Jesus, there is no day we could choose to say, it's just not convenient to follow you today. I want to choose not to. There's no day as often. There's no choice in how we handle life other than to keep Jesus at the center. There's no special circumstances. And while you're probably sitting there right now thinking, Jimmy, you're like being crazy dramatic about this. Like, can a decision just be a decision? Sure. But too often I think we're at the center of our decisions and not Jesus. And we think about how will this benefit me, not the kingdom of heaven. And we think about the now and not the future. And I am positive that it matters with every decision that we make because we never know who's watching and we never know whose life this is going to impact. And I am positive that as we've read through Ruth together, there is no way that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz thought with each and every decision I wonder who this is going to impact. They just kept showing up to make the best choices they could with what's in front of them. And if they could, they did. And there's no way that they thought the best is yet to come. It was just showing up. And I think that as we close out our series, it's so important for us. And I want to make a huge request for us as a church to understand that each of our decisions, when we choose to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus matter. Each one is an opportunity for us to look, to love, to laugh, and to speak like Jesus to those who are around us. So let's look at this last chapter in Ruth, Ruth chapter four, to kind of get an idea of how is the best yet to come? Because I know last week in chapter three, I left you kind of to the wind. I left you in this place of waiting of how will Boaz show up for Ruth, who last night, you know, proposed to him, and now he's like, yeah, I'll get this done tomorrow for you. Like, I got you. And now everyone's left waiting. Like, did he do it? Did he follow through? What happens? Well, if you weren't here with us, this is the story as simply as I could put it. After working their tails off, Ruth and Naomi, you know, have come to this place where they know the future cannot be just together because they have this land that needs to be redeemed. And there happens to be a guy named Boaz who's been so kind and generous. And now he is in this line of redeemers, this man who could restore all things to this family. 
and really help them and secure their land and secure their family line. He's been spending all night thinking and planning, how do I get this land? How do I marry this woman? And how can we just keep moving forward as a family? Let's see how this plan kind of works out, okay? Ruth, chapter four, verse one, it says this. Boaz went into the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I wanna talk to you. So they sat down together. Now, just for some context, because it seems a little bit weird to us that you would like go to the town gate to make a deal. Um, the town gate is really where all the action is. This is where the markets are. This is where the business happened. This is courthouses and legal affairs happened here. While it's not the center of the city, it really is the center of city life. Okay, so this is where you would go to get business done. And Boaz would know that this redeemer, now remember, this city itself of Bethlehem, this town, village, if you will, in between 150 to maybe 300 people. Everybody knows everybody, right? Stories fly, it's a, it's a small high school of people. And a majority of them are related in some way or another as part of the same tribe. So when Boaz goes to the city gate to sit down, he is pretty confident he's gonna see this next redeemer in line at some point. So he's kind of in this position of like, all right, I'm gonna wait for my opportunity. When I see my buddy, he's gonna know me, I'm gonna know him. We just had this massive you know, harvest and, and we've got all this grain, maybe he, Maybe this guy thinks, you know, Boaz wants to make a deal for grain, you know, that they're going to make a trade or whatever it is. But when he calls him over, this is not a weird moment for this other guy that's like, oh, no, am I in trouble? Like, what did I do wrong? Are you going to you know, yell at me about something? This is family members connecting and saying, hey, I, I, I got a deal for you. Like, come here. Let's talk about this. So let's pick it up in verse two. It says this. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you could redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And the man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Now. I, I don't, it seems like a little weird, but we're gonna run with it. It's, it's odd for our culture to make a big deal this fast, but it seems pretty simple. We know that Naomi wants to sell her field. The first in line is this, whoever's closest in their family gets the opportunity to buy this. Um, both Boaz and this first redeemer, we'll call him, they, they likely understand what we talked about um, very early on in our series about Leviticus 25 and how and who gets rights to land so that it can stay in a family or it, it's really protected from outside foreigners getting a hold of it. Uh, and and what, what Boaz does here is he lays out the rules that they already know. He's making sure that in the witnesses of these 10 guys, these 10 leaders to say, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. I want to put all the cards on the table so no one's hiding anything. Let's just make sure it's clear. Honestly, this is a pretty like genuine move. This is a man of integrity saying, I'm not trying to pull one over on you yet. I also believe that there is a strategy to what he's doing here that's just killer. And I love it. But Boaz presents this and he's like, you remember Naomi, right? She left, she came back. 
she's selling her land. This is Elimelech's land, and he's our people. We're his redeemers, right? So if you're interested in this land, let us know. What do you think? I mean, everybody's here. Make your call, uh, because if you don't want to do it, I'll be ready to pull the trigger now. This is like a pressure moment. Like he's putting the pressure on it. And I don't know if it's his intention or not, but he's created a, an environment where it's kind of hard to make a really good decision. You know, I mean, have, have you ever been caught off guard and had to make a big decision? You've got no time to research, no time to think about it. Um, even when we talk about like proposals for people, most couples know this is going to happen or not going to happen. So when the proposal happens, it's still a surprise and really cool, but but not like this. Like, dude, you want to buy a house? You got a couple seconds to make your call. Like, that's what this feels like. And I would argue that very few decisions we could ever make in life that are really big are ever made well on a short, you know, decision-making time. That it's like, you got to make the call. Make it now. Okay, I'm going to do this. Like, whoa. These big things need to be thought about. We kind of need wisdom from people around us. Uh, you know, this guy, though he, he doesn't miss a beat. He's not waiting. He's working. And he's like, that land? I'm in. I'll take it. Deal. Now, I, I don't know if he had the wisdom to wait, though. Like, sometimes when you're being watched by a bunch of people and you got to make a decision, it gets even harder to make a decision, doesn't it? When people are watching you. Like, you could be the Jeopardy champ in your living room. And, and every time that question comes up, you nail it. But I guarantee you, I bring you to a set, I put you in a booth with two contestants next to you who you think might be smarter than you, a buzzer in your hand and someone asking you questions. Guess how many you get right? None. Why? The pressure could destroy us, right? We feel it. We, we, we like comfort. And now he's got people watching. I don't know if it's the intention or not. I, I don't know if he only knew part of the law of Leviticus and did, didn't know like, yo, with the land comes the people. But he's so in on this land deal from what this guy knows, it's a no brainer because fine, you mentioned Naomi, I could take care of her. And if I take care of Naomi until she dies, there's no heir to that land. It becomes mine. My estate becomes bigger. This is worth the cost. Like I'm really buying this as an investment for my family's future. I'm in. Sweet. I'll take it. And Boaz's response is so good here. Check out verses five and six. This is what he says. He says, Then Boaz told him, Of course, the purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. Notice he doesn't mention her as Naomi's daughter-in-law, or he's highlighting her foreignness. He's highlighting her otherness. He doesn't refer to her this way. But he knows this, I think he knows this is going to cause some issues here, right? He continues and he says, that way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Boaz totally pulls the bait and switch. The bait and switch. He gets them all excited about the land. And then he's like, this is what the law says, right? Yeah. Well, the law also says that you are responsible here, the cost of the land just got a lot higher, didn't it? The cost just really increased. And, and when this is added to the deal, that like you are now responsible for this old widow and now a young widow and getting her pregnant by marrying her so that she could have a son who gets the land, all of these things, 
our first redeemer has a little bit of a change of heart. Check it out. It says, then I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger, and this Hebrew word endanger is amazing for so many reasons, but this Hebrew word endanger, when he says, because this might endanger, it means this might ruin, destroy, or cause trouble. And so he says, because this might endanger, ruin, destroy, cause trouble, my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. The land, easy. The cost of another family in these relationships and expectations, much higher. I'm positive the first redeemer thought if she has this son, that land is Naomi's again. I won't even get anything out of this deal. Maybe the only thing I get is a giant earful at home. You know, you're put on the spot to make a business deal here. How do you go home and tell your wife, like, so how is things at the gate? Oh, man, I, I got, got this great new field. Remember Naomi? She's selling it. So we got a great new field. Oh, that's great. It came with upgrades. It's got Naomi. So we get, we're going to get like another mother-in-law type person for you. And we're, we're going to get, you remember that, that woman, Ruth, that foreign lady that everybody's talking about? They love all her stories of kindness and grace. And, you know, she's beautiful. She works so hard in the field. She comes with it, too. And I get to marry her. And, and, and I'm going to try to have a son with her so they get the land back. Do you really want to go home and tell your wife that? Do you want to go home and tell your family, we're going to give up something, but there's going to be nothing that we get in return? I'm not sure most wives are in for this land upgrade. Do you know what I mean? This might be seen more as a threat or a liability than a redeeming moment. And before we totally bury this guy and make him out to be this horrible person, listen, he's first in line of other people. So Boaz has, has already declared, if you don't want it, I'll take it. So it's not like he's just leaving this family out to die. He knows that they'll be taken care of. He just doesn't want the responsibility of being another dad, another son-in-law, another husband. Like there's more responsibility to this. The cost is higher and it, someone else is willing to pay the price for the field and the relationships. It was an easy yes when it didn't cost him anything but money. But when Boaz added the responsibilities, the cost was too much. Sometimes it's really easy for us, I think, to remember only part of the teachings and the commandments of Jesus. It's really easy for us to, to pick the ones we like that aren't gonna cost us. The ones that seem really pleasant, that make great images on the Bible app that we could share, that don't really cost us. But the moment that we realize that we can't pick and choose what Jesus says, that when he says whatever he says that's in red in your Bible, there's no taking it back. There's no choosing to say, I, I, can I cut it out? I don't want that part. We do not get to do this. And when we realize that Jesus' call for us as his disciples is to give up our lives for the sake of others, every decision we make matters. But for most of us, I worry that our 21st century church speaks the words of the first redeemer in this story with our actions by saying this 
command. What you are asking of me is going to endanger my estate. It's going to endanger me at the center, my promotions, my, you know, longing to hold a grudge over those people, my control over my money. This might endanger my own estate. Someone else can do the loving. Someone else can do the committing. Someone else can do the giving. Someone else can do the serving. I cannot do it. This might endanger how I treat my family, my spouse, and my kids. It might cost me my job. But the moment that we truly understand the cost, I think I worry that too many of us bow out and we let someone else step in. And you know what's wild about that? I like the way that, um, that, that Rabbi Herbert Brichto puts it, and he's a, uh, the former dean at the Hebrew Union College. As he unpacks this passage, here's what he has to say about this first redeemer not stepping in. He says, the welfare of the dead depend upon descendants retaining ancestral property. The unknown kinsman had no desire to raise a son who could continue Malon's name. And the irony is clear. It's the kinsman whose name is forgotten. No one knows who this man was. He's not given a name. And in a culture that values names and lineage, his is lost because he did not want to pay the full cost of redemption. He passes the privilege onto another family redeemer who's next and misses the biggest blessing that was yet to come, but he never knew it. I wonder if if he waited a little and thought about this decision, if things would have been different. I wonder if he went home to talk it over with his wife and his family and they were like, we're going to be committed together to the law of Leviticus 25. You need to redeem this land. We are in this together. I wonder, but the truth still remains that redemption always costs something. Redemption always costs something. Always, there is never a time when redemption is free and does not come at a cost. If you redeem a coupon, it costs the manufacturer. If you redeem a gift card, it costs the store that product. If you redeem airline, you know, miles to fly wherever, it costs that airline a seat. And if it's redeeming the sin and the pain and the ugliness of our life. It costs Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only perfect person ever, everything. It cost him his life to redeem us. Redemption isn't cheap. It isn't easy. And it always, always, always costs something. In Ruth 4, Boaz knows the cost. He knows it up front and he knows it when he sets up this deal. And if if Ruth has a son, the land's no longer his. He's not in it for the land. From the outside looking in, he gains so little. He gains an unkempt, unplowed, you know, mess and weedy field. He gains a broken Bitter old widow. He gains a young foreign wife. 
But as we've seen through Boaz's story, he's a man who wants to be the blessing, not to be blessed. And it has never been about the cost. He's blessed Ruth with the security of a job, safety in the fields, extra lunches, um, all of this grain for Naomi, and even taking the responsibility of securing this deal at the city gate for her when he gets nothing out of this deal. He's truly lived out our week two challenge of what if everybody who could did? He's doing it. So he makes the deal with the first redeemer in line. And if you read verses seven and eight, it tells you that the first kinsman took off a sandal. He gives it to Boaz as a point of purchase, like proof of purchase. We have little coupons. He gives him a shoe. Again, it's odd to many of us, but basically it's his way of saying, you know, listen, I I don't want to walk this road. So you take my shoe. This is your path now to walk. You walk it. And so he would give him his shoe and say, this is yours. Boaz doesn't take the shoe and walk away just counting the cost. He turns to the whole crowd and he announces what's going on. Um, I love this. It's almost like he's making a wedding vow here to the entire nation. His entire little village is about to know his intentions in this moment. Check out Ruth 4, verses 9 and 10. It says this, Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are my witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Melon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Melon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family's property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Boaz declares with a boldness here, a chesed kindness of loyalty, but now he's got some chutzpah, some courage, some boldness. And what he declares to everybody is Ruth is going to be my wife. I think when he's saying this, he's grinning from ear to ear. It's like the speech that inspires everyone who's listening on to go, this is like the real deal. He's meaning every word of this. And he says, I want to have a son with her. Not for me, but for her husband and his name and that family line. Like, I want them to go on. This isn't about me. This way, Ruth, Naomi, and Elimelech's field and Elimelech's line will always know this is home. Not once here does he lift himself up. Does he make himself to be the hero? Not once does he mention, well, this is going to cost me. I mean, she was really good at going around the fields and picking up the leftover. This is going to cost me because now I got, now I got another field I got to hire people for. What if the field isn't good? This is going to cost me because... He never says what it's going to cost him because it just doesn't matter the cost. The redemption was what he was called to. And he was showing up to be the blessing because he could. It's about showing up every day, making every decision count. Everyone in the city here, they actually begin to celebrate like crazy. Like he rallies the troops like they're about to go take over, you know, uh, another army, even though he's like, I'm going to marry her. They're like, you go marry her. You know, they're all pumped. And, and what they do is they pray for him to have this immensely long line of descendants. And they're like, they, there's nothing greater that a town could bless you with than the blessing of a long lineage. 
and what was thou broken and lost, he steps in to redeem. And so Boaz marries Ruth and they have a son. And the son's name is Obed. And when he's born, all the women in the town, I love it, they celebrate this son. And do you know who they celebrate with? It's actually not Ruth and it's not Boaz. They celebrate with the person who named themselves bitter in chapter one and call her blessed in chapter four. They celebrate Naomi. And they say to Naomi here, check this out. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. In chapter one, this author emptied Naomi in 71 words, destroyed her in the Hebrew. And in chapter four, in 71 miraculous words, fills her and blesses her and literally puts on her the blessing of a long lineage and new life because of this son. In their praise, it starts with God who's redeemed them. Like this is God's plan. And they praise her daughter-in-law. It's not Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the foreigner. It's not Boaz's wife. Ruth, she's yours. And the promise that she made when she said in chapter one, in verse 16 and 17, she says to Naomi, you remember when Ruth says to Naomi, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And these women say, this daughter-in-law you have is worth more than seven sons. And that is elevating her to a place that no woman has stood before in this town. No woman will stand in that place for thousands of years in that town to be elevated to a place that deserves to be praised as the mother of God, to show up as a blessing to say, I will be here. But Ruth showed up. She followed through. She could have gone home, but she made a simple choice in one moment. I'm choosing to go. She showed up every day with what? Kindness, determination, to be the blessing. And Ruth's son, Obed, this great blessing to Naomi, who's gonna carry on the line, he, he grows up and has a son whose name is Jesse. Jesse grows up and he actually has a bunch of kids. The youngest of his kids happens to be named David. And David is simply a musician and poet. He's a shepherd who hangs out to watch sheep, but happens to be a master of the sling who could take out bears and lions and ends up taking out a giant, stepping into being anointed, the future king of Israel as they unite as a nation, as they organize as a people, and becomes known as a man who is a great redeemer of the people in Israel, a man after God's own heart himself, a man who knew how to show up with kindness and also knew the pain of bitterness. And we read all of his Psalms as we look through there. 
There is no way that Ruth and Boaz, when they were making any of the decisions to care for Naomi, to redeem these lands, to do anything, there's no way that they would have known that each and every choice they made would have led to one of the greatest kings of Israel. And not just that, but even more importantly, Ruth and Boaz with each of these decisions, do you know where else they're mentioned in scripture? If you go into the biographies of Jesus where they track his line, where every name's important, in Matthew chapter one, we read the name of Boaz and Ruth. The foreign widow is in Jesus's lineage. And that one line, while it just says, and from Boaz and Ruth, there it is, is a whole lot of choices that you and I know that they made, never knowing the best is yet to come. That while Boaz showed up as a redeemer because it was right, that from their line would be a redeemer that would redeem the entire world, all of humanity from something they could never pay for themselves. And when Jesus walked this earth for 30 years, he looked just like everyone else around him. But when he stepped into the mission to redeem the world, do you know what happened? It cost him. It cost him popularity. It cost him safety. It cost him family relationships and tensions. It cost him money. And ultimately, like I said before, it cost him his life on the cross And when he was on that cross, he breathed in his last and he declared, it is finished. This is done. This is paid for. And when he rose again three days later, the cost of our sin was paid. We were redeemed and death no longer has a hold on us when we place our trust in Jesus. Rabbi Zerira, in his sum up of this story, It's amazing. He says, this scroll is not concerned with purity or defilement. It's not concerned with prohibition or permission. It was written to teach you of the magnificent reward of those who practice and dispense chesed, steadfast kindness. In his great love for us, Christ demonstrated his kindness, his loyalty to die for us And yet many of us can simply say, God, I'll follow the parts I like, but I don't want to pay the cost. And we never, ever wear and hold the weight that he paid it all for us. Committing to be a disciple of Jesus isn't easy. I'd love to have the bubble. I'd love to take a day off just because I'm tired and and I make the wrong decisions. And I feel guilty about all those decisions but our Redeemer paid the price for us. And as we close this series, we have to ask the question, is it worth it to keep stepping towards Jesus every day in every way, even when it feels like it is so hard and it's inconvenient and it's costly? Is it really worth it if it costs me? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely, yes. Every decision matters because we never know who's watching. We never know whose life will be blessed because we chose to just be the blessing, not to get from them. But when we show up to live, live, love, and look like Jesus in all of our relationships, asking for forgiveness when we fail, right? But if we continue in this process of stepping towards him, even when it's hard, it's so worth it because 
the best is yet to come. Ruth and Boaz never saw, never saw the king of Israel. But they are now celebrating, I believe, with the king of heaven and earth. They know that it was worth it. The best is yet to come. So Crossbridge, will you join me in trying our best to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us to step and make the best decisions that we can that look like Jesus. And when we fail, we know that there's someone next to us to pick us up, that we show up because redemption always costs something. Will you join me in paying the cost? to help redeem our world through Jesus Christ. I love you so much. I miss you. And I cannot wait to celebrate with you as we enter into a new series next week. I'll see you then.